everyone. It's Professor Buzzkill here. During the month of January, we are celebrating and promoting the book Myth America, which is by far the most important book that's come along for this show in the last, well, six years of this show. And I need also to say before we start that this show is being brought to you by Dame Chloe Mills, who's a knight in the Duchy of Buzzkill, one of our great Patreon supporters. And I know that Chloe will love the fact that we dedicated this particular show to her and that her support helps bring it about. And very fortunately, here again on the show with us is Dr. Natalia Petrozella, who was here last month talking about Fit Nation, and she's here this time talking about her fabulous chapter in Myth America called Family Values Feminism. Hello, Professor. Welcome, welcome back. I am glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. This is such an important chapter. I couldn't believe it as I was reading it. I thought to myself, every sentence could be a book mm -hmm. on its own. It completely destroys this myth that fe feminist movements of the 19th century and the 20th century were anti-family. And I, th I just wanted you to expound on this a little bit. But before we do that, maybe you could talk about this fantastic opening that your chapter has, this party for the failure of the ERA to be ratified in 1982. Give, give the buzzkillers a taste of that. Sure. So thanks for having me back and your kind words about the chapter, which opens, as you mentioned, at <laughs> what some attendees were gleefully calling the pro-family ball. And what was this? This was the party that was taking place to celebrate the end of the window for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. So it's 1982, and all these conservatives are coming together in this big ballroom to celebrate what they are presenting as a victory for pro-family forces against feminists. And feminists, right. as they presented it, feminists want to destroy your family with things like the Equal Rights Amendment, and we are here to stop them. And they were, as, we, as we've been saying, doubling down on the idea that the 10 years granted for ratification of any sort of amendment to the Constitution had passed, and that as, one, as the band played at that night, a really offensive thing to do, played the song Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. Yes, and playing that song, I mean, obviously the witch is uh, symbolic of the ERA, but it also totally evoked on all of these terrible stereotypes about what feminists were like. They're not ladies, they're not mothers, they are these like battle axe witches who um, should be stopped. And that was the nature of all the speeches there, right? What's next? Pulling textbooks out of schools that present women doing anything but being stay-at-home moms, pushing back, certainly on gay rights, which people were already talking about at the time, mm -hmm. but on all matters of feminist organization. Now, Phyllis Schlafly is running this event. She's the star of this event. She was the star of the anti-ERA movement. But in, in some ways, her political, the arc of her political career is starting to wane. But at this rally in 82, Jerry Faldwell and, of course, Reagan and everyone else is there. All these people have been coming up for the past few years. So it's almost, a, I don't want to say it's a passing of a torch or something silly like that. But you, you, you begin to see the beginnings of this massive reaction against feminism in the 80s that has stuck with us until 
today at least. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, Schlafly and her own relationship to feminism is an interesting case because she actually had come up as a kind of foreign policy wonk and she had never yeah. been allowed to have a seat at the table with these Republican war hawks who she sympathized with. She's a very smart and formidable woman because they didn't want a lady weighing in on nuclear policy. That was not her place. And ironically, it was thanks in many ways to the advances of feminists who had been, you know, organizing for over a century to allow women to have full political participation and citizenship that she was able, you know, to get the education she did, et cetera, but that she was able to actually then make a real intervention into the political sphere. But interestingly, it wasn't on foreign policy, which was her first kind of realm of passion and expertise. It was on so-called women's issues, not women's issues like you know, child welfare or the Equal Rights Amendment, certainly, but organizing for issues that she defined as defending the woman's sphere, which was the family, children, morality, et cetera. And I mean, she was an incredible organizer. She was organizing other moms um, and women primarily who had never really thought of themselves as political, in part because they didn't see these issues of morality and sexuality as political. But again, in part, thanks to the feminist movement who had been saying the personal is political, these women organized really around that same exact idea idea, but from a conservative perspective. So, you know, I've thought a lot and written about Phyllis Schlafly and so much of what she stood for, I absolutely disagree with, with like every fiber of my body. But on the other hand, we've got to really respect this woman who was an incredible organizer and somebody who really changed the nature of political participation and, and conversation. And, you know, for that, I give her grudging respect, even though I disagree with <laughs> a lot of the ways she used her her intelligence and power. It, it's not ahistorical, I think, to say that she she wasn't single-handedly responsible for the ERA not being oh, ratified, no. but she was perhaps the most important person. Yeah, I think she was really important at tying the ERA to this perceived threat of kind of moral breakdown in society, right? Like, so if you think about the ERA, I mean, that is in many ways not a very radical presupposition, no. right? Oh. This is like equal rights and individualism for all effectively, right, right. right? That should be something that's not such a hard pill to swallow. And it wasn't. There was an enormous amount of support for the ERA. But what she did, and not just her, but other religious conservatives, she was a Catholic, but she organized with Protestant conservatives who were getting more involved in kind of formal politics. They managed to tie that to this is the beginning of the breakdown of society. Right. This is the beginning. This is the end of gender differences. This is women wanting to be like men. And so in leaning into that, I think she was very and a very important architect of that shift. And we are totally still living with this today. Oh, yes, yes, in a big way. And as you point out early in the chapter, there, there's all, there are all these movements to ban books that don't that show anything but women as as housewives, women in the kitchen. Yeah. Anytime those depictions weren't there, she was very or the, these organizations very active pushing PTAs and other groups to ban these books. And that's exactly what's going on now. It is. And it's interesting. I mean, I'm glad you're not asking me that reductive question of like, well, did she win or not? Because on the one hand, we're right, still right. doing this. On the other hand, right. the nature of what is contested 
is actually very different. And if you're thinking win-lose, you might say progressives have made enormous inroads because what is being protested right now? It's not a woman like going to a business suit, going to the office. It's like a whole new conversation about trans rights. And, you know, it's like a very different kind of, we're at a different point in that conversation, even if some of the nature of the conflict feels incredibly familiar and I think is very rooted in these battles. But one of the things that is so familiar as you go through your chapter, as I think readers will see through chapter, is this constant attack on feminism as being anti-family. And you go back through and show from the how from the very beginning, it not only isn't anti-family, and in many ways, it's it, in all sorts of ways, it's promoting the family, trying to improve the family, trying to make family values much stronger. Yeah. So can we, to, can we take a little tiptoe through the chronology? We don't want to give away too much because we want right. the buzzkillers to get the book. Right. But wouldn't, some, wa- some, wouldn't want to give away all that breaking 19th century history. That <laughs> right, right, right. Well, it is new stuff for people to, to learn. Totally. Totally, totally. Yes. So this was um, a real challenge because these are short chapters and they're meant to be readable to go back and to put so much history in here and in a way that doesn't feel cherry picked. And I really tried hard to do that. But, you know, the main argument that I'm trying to make, and let's go back to the 19th century, is that from the minute that feminism is even a term being used, which is in like the 1830s and 40s, the women who are claiming that mantle or organizing or organizing around things we would think of as feminist or proto-feminist, they are for the most part doing so around issues that are primarily about protecting the family. In fact, I think Phyllis yeah. Schlafly, who was not someone as far as I understood, a Stan, who really rooted herself in a historical tradition, I think she would agree with some of these early 19th century feminists. Like, yes, yeah, some of them were organizing for suffrage, and we'll get to that in one second. But early on, yeah. 1830s and 40s, these are women, before they have the vote, of course, who are organizing around temperance, right, which is like moderating alcohol. Why? Because men Men were going and spending their money at the saloon. They were running around with so-called loose women. They were getting violent and beating their wives and children. They weren't supporting them. That's a pro-family position, right? So that's like something that's very important for them. And then like that's sort of one way to kind of dip your toe in. And then even as the suffrage movement kicks up, which one could and some did say, well, you know, that's not good because women should primarily be sort of part of the family unit, not independent agents. So that's the first kind of point of tension. But these suffragists from the early 19th century until the amendment is passed in in the early 20th century, they are very much claiming women's suffrage as a way to uphold the family, as a way to extend kind of essential feminine virtue and goodness, which is a pretty traditional idea into the public sphere. And so I say this not because I agree with what all these feminists were doing, these early feminists were doing, because the truth of the matter is like, in defending this very conservative vision of the family, they were excluding a lot of other people. Like these women sure. were totally bound up with supporting a k- kind of white straight motherhood, right? Those weren't the, the words that they were using necessarily around the t- at the time around around uh, sexuality. But this is a very conservative vision. So I'm both saying, hey, Schlafly and the folks today who are saying feminists hate families and they always have, they're wrong. Feminists have always been about upholding the family. But I want to make very clear, and I hope this comes through particularly in this early 19th century piece, that 
them supporting the family, that was a movement that had its own problems and real blind spots or not even blind spots, but explicit racism. And I think that that is super important. Right. In other shows we've done with Dr. Lisa Tatro and other people, we've shown that, you know, the, there's a big difference in the suffrage movement between those who want women to get the vote first or the, over those who want African-American men to get the vote first. And uh. So it's not it's not always clear fight for equality for, for everyone. Yeah. So how does slavery fit into that specific part? No, I think that's so important. So on the one hand, you have some women, these kind of early feminists who are not at all concerned about emancipation or civil rights for black people. And you see even in, you know, as they're organizing for the vote after emancipation, they are saying, you know, well, white women should have the vote to offset the Negro vote. So you see very explicitly this kind of championing of white women's rights against black rights. So that's one aspect of this. Of course, there are other women during slavery in particular, or or of course during slavery, there are other women who are abolitionists as well. And what I think is important to realize here is that one of the key planks of their argument against the inhumanity of slavery is that it destroys families. And they talk about children being sold off from their parents, about couples being split up and not being able to have the right to family. And in doing that, they are actually like totally uncritical of the nuclear family, which wasn't a term being used yet, but of the family being the building block of society and almost and a human right, even for black enslaved people at the time. And so I think that's all so important to realize, both to see that at times the limitations around race of these early feminists, but also to see how powerful the organizing notion of family in its defense was for feminists, like feminists always. And that's what gives lie to Schlafly and all these others who are like, they've always hated families. No, they have not. And then as the 19th century progresses and urbanization becomes stronger, industrialization becomes stronger, there are all sorts of issues surrounding, for instance, health and education and health and education in the family. Yeah. So what? how does sort of feminism, how, how do various feminist movements at, in, in the late 19th century and early 20th century deal with health and education specifically? Yeah, well, at that moment, you know, you have all of these new immigrants coming in and you're in this post-emancipation moment and women who are organizing it as feminists, part of what they're doing is, you know, talking about suffrage and that's a huge focus, but they're also involved in all of these kind of moral and social reform movements around education, health, et cetera. And the building block of that is always the family. They are saying, let's mm-hmm. talk to the mothers and let's teach them how to be, you know, so-called proper Americans and how to cook well. Let's talk, let's educate along, you know, sort of moral education and cleanliness, et cetera. And all of that is about building a so-called like good American home. And they see that as part of this feminist project. Part of that also, and one of the most important parts, I think, and one that gets really weaponized by the right later, is also building up the kind of welfare state, which didn't exist at all. And so you have you have during this period, um, you know, because you have such an expansion of of, uh, a demographic expansion with so many immigrants coming in. I'm talking about the East Coast, but also um, Mexican immigrants in the Southwest. I mean, you have a real issue with indigent kids and with people in need. And what happens, a lot of feminists organize to create city and state and federal welfare programs for these people. What is fascinating is that 
they do a lot of good, but they also do some harm, I would say, in saying, in kind of establishing who's deserving and is not deserving of that aid. Now, yeah, who, who yeah. is deserving to stay on message here? Mothers are deserving. Children exactly. are deserving. So what does that mean? That means that these feminists who absolutely are deploying state resources to help poor people, which becomes something that Republicans hate, Republicans are very quick to forget that actually this was a state project to uphold a very traditional vision of women and mothers and family. And that's what they're doing. Like they're actually, they're women who are making arguments at this time saying like, oh, well, we wouldn't want women to have to work because they should be home with their children. And so we need to provide aid to help them. And so it is complicated. But one thing that is not complicated is the vision that Feminists are organizing to support rather traditional visions of what family is, not attacking it. Right. And one of the big health movements then in the in the later 19th century, early 20th century is, of course, what becomes family planning. Mm -hmm. And that's been a huge target yeah. by this same group of, of Shafley and other people on the right wing and how they've incorrectly characterized 19th century feminists. Oh, absolutely. So I'm glad we get to talk for a minute about Planned Parenthood here, which is still a kind of stalking horse for the right, right? That Planned Parenthood yeah. is like the institution which is trying to kill babies and destroy families. Well, it doesn't take much research at all to really look at Margaret Sanger, a founder of Planned Parenthood, and realize she went into this work of providing, you know, neonatal and prenatal health for women because she saw her own mother unable to fully care for her family because she had so many children and was so weakened by it. What she wanted or her and one of part of her initial inspiration was a mother who was more able to care for her children. Right. And so that right is so forgotten in this attack on Planned Parenthood as being anti-family. And I think it's really important to realize that at the time there were definitely, I mean, this is not like this was a, a controversial organization for sure, but not in the way that it becomes much later on. And for much of the mid 20th century, you have people on both sides of the aisle, including religious people who are totally on board with family planning as something that is, you know, not even liberal or conservative. It's just like something that a good society does, right? That a good society is trying to actually strengthen families by helping them allocate their resources so uh, in order to not have, you know, many, many children. When abortion comes into play, that changes things later. But um, I think that's very, very forgotten. I mean, there are Republican presidents who are sitting on the board of Planned Parenthood. That would not happen today. Yes. Well, you point out that President Truman was on mm -hmm. the board. President Eisenhower was on the board. Billy Graham early on said that there's nothing in the Bible that prevents birth control. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a, at least indirectly a supporter of Planned Parenthood. And these myths, though, just keep getting pounded and pounded and pounded as the 20th century then progresses. It's almost as if it's almost as if they sit down with a with a with a genuine history of, of feminist movements and say, OK, let's change everything 180 degrees. Let's let's take you know what is obviously pro-family and just say it's anti-family. And the more we say it, the, the the more people will believe it. Is is that why you think 
it has been so successful reaching those people? Well, I think the reason it has been so successful and particularly why Schlafly and her contemporaries were able to get such traction when they did is because it is true that in the 1960s and 70s, even as what I would consider a very pro-family strand of feminism continued, and they continued to, in the sense of arguing for, you know, policy not to discriminate against pregnant people, they argued for more social welfare. Like there are all these ways that feminists continue to advocate for paid leave, like all these things for for that strengthen the family. But it absolutely is true that in the 60s and 70s, there's a very powerful and vocal and visible part of feminism that is predicated on the idea that like, hey, women who are not mothers are worth something too. And actually women who are not straight are worth something too. And so you have, right. and, they, and, and those women are pointing out real problems with a feminist movement that had focused so much on straight white women, many of the mothers for so long. That's a big deal in the 60s and 70s, and it is a big deal within the feminist movement and in the la on the left, but it's also a really big deal and a very powerful way for people on the right to look, to point at these newly visible folks who are you know, celebrating that I don't need to be a mom to be worth something in society. And they say, you see, they're coming for you next. The lesbians, the career women, the ones who just wanna be like men, the athletes, right? And we see all of this legislation that is happening during this period that depending on where you sit can either seem like an advance of women's rights in a way that it like just allows women to approach sort of full personhood and citizenship, or you can see it as, oh my God, this is an attack on the bedrock of our society. And Schlafly and her contemporaries were very good at exploiting that. But it seems like the, the, they want to tar all feminists with this new brush by saying, oh yes, all, the, all, fem, all feminists in the past were like this. They were all anti-family, anti anti-woman, anti-traditional women, even though they clearly weren't, even though this new strand that you're talking about is a new strand and it is just a strand. It's, it's one diverse aspect of the many things that are feminism. Oh. So that so it seems like the critics and then of course Newt Gingrich takes this to unbelievable heights to just make it just so you, if we paint an all one color going all the way back to I don't know the early suffragists we can we can win. We can gain more support for our extreme program. Yes, you're right. And it should not be that surprising because it's not like, you know, we have an exceptionally historically literate populace, right? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's exactly what they did. And um, I think some of it might be born of true ignorance, but a lot of it is probably born of kind of bad faith politicking. So yeah, especially yeah. when now historians are not so into this whole first wave, second wave thing. But if you think about what used to be called second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s, which is, was having such a moment and such a moment, you know, where voices, like I said, other than sort of more traditional women and mothers were, were speaking out, it was ripe for kind of exploitation by the right. And what is fascinating, and I have in the, in the, in the article, in the book chapter, but what I found is that like, there are women writing in to newspapers about the Equal Rights Amendment saying like, you know, we're really sick of this caricature of feminists, which is being pushed everywhere in the media that we like, 
don't want to get married and we hate our kids and we don't shave our armpits. And like, we're a bunch of moms who want equal rights and we don't feel that we're being portrayed. And I think that that's really important to think about the way that particular caricatures of feminism were, you know, deployed to really great harm. But I see that then continuing. I mean, it's, it's in many ways, it's almost gotten worse. If if you look at the way AOC, Representative Alexandria Octavia Cortez, Octavia Cortez is portrayed, most people in modern societies would consider her fairly moderate, progressive, mm-hmm. but fairly moderate. Well, she's been turned into some sort of psychotic, well, witch, as in ding dong. When we get rid of her, ding dong, the witch will be dead. And it's just so bizarre that it's it's swallowed so wholly by that audience. I am not so surprised that it's swallowed so wholly. My hunch is also that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hits a particular note with the right in part because she actually conforms to some pretty conventional feminine ideals. I mean, she's conventionally gorgeous, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And the fact that that really pushes back on this idea that like, oh, which you still hear all the time, feminists are just like ugly women who can't get a man. Well, here you have a beautiful woman who is clearly making other choices and living a great life. And I think that that is something that really strikes a chord on the right because there's still, I mean, you, Matt Gates, the guy from Florida, is still trafficking in the oldest stereotypes. I mean, he was talking oh. about a kind of, you know, a protest after Roe was overturned. And he was like, look at the women in the crowd. Like, you think that they need abortions? Like, basically, like, no straight man would touch them. I mean, just this old, stupid stereotype of a feminist who is only such because she couldn't get a man. She couldn't be a mom. She couldn't have babies, right? right. And I think that Ocasio-Cortez, and there are other examples of this, too, but in being sort of conventionally attractive and feminine in, in that way really enrages people who love to trot out that kind of tired, unfortunate, cruel stereotype. Inaccurate, too. Well, Professor, so many of you uh, historians, we're, we're in such a great period, we're in a period of having great historians who are very engaged with the public, I think, better than ever before. And so many chapters in this book, I hope reach a broad audience. But what else can we be doing? Should we be doing in order to try to break down the the historical myths that underpin so much of this garbage? We historians, I think, you know, I was so honored to be asked to contribute to this volume because I think it's things like this, actually, which like hopefully grab the public a little bit by the lapels and says, let's say like, hey, listen up. Like the way this book is structured is very, I mean, it's not the way any academic book would be structured. It's kind of like myth busting, right? It's like, let's tell you the history of this myth and then tell you why it's wrong. Very kind of straightforward. I personally think it's not for everyone, but I sort of really appreciate and embrace the opportunities to like go talk to people who are very different from me, who are not necessarily sympathetic from me. You don't always know you're getting into a good faith conversation, but I think it's actually really important for us to continue to have these conversations vocally, because the truth of the matter is, as this book, I think, bears out, is that the minute you start bringing some real history into the fore, you start to realize that a lot of 
these myths and these damaging ideas just fall apart under the cold light of like historical yeah. fact. Yeah. And I think that, you know, some of our discourse has gotten so degraded that I actually really understand the like, I don't want to engage, right? Like I'm not even bothering with this and we all need to take a step back sometimes. But I think to the extent you're feeling a little bit kind of like up for the fight, this is kind of what we've been training for all our lives, right? Like doing this right, work, right. not for the soundbite, but to kind of understand things in a more complex way. And I think those of us who want to kind of step up and articulate this, um, we really should and not shy away from it. So it's not always fun. It is work and that work we're not always recognized for, but I'm a big fan of trying to do my best to contribute from the, you know, the knowledge that I have to try to do some good, to do some good with it. So that would be my, my recommendation. Well, I think a lot of people ought to emulate what you're doing because you are doing some good. Not only are your books very important along these lines, and let me just repeat for the Buzzkillers, 2015, you came out with class, Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture. Fit Nation is not just about, you know, this sort of celebration of, of exercises about the gains and pains of an obsession, but also you, your podcast, Welcome to Your Fantasies, very important. And perhaps for our listeners, most importantly, you're one of the co-hosts of past present podcast, which is fabulous. Thank We're going to put all of this on the blog post for this episode. We're going to put a link to your website, which is, by the way, one of the best oh, historians websites out there. Thank you. I'm extremely jealous. And it just remains for me to, to remind the Buzzkill is that Myth America is on the Buzzkill bookshelf. It's there for you to get. One of our lucky Patreon subscribers, Patreon supporters will get a free copy and they'll know about that in the mail. It's great that we're devoting this whole month of January to the book. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have joined you again. I appreciate it. And Buzzkillers out there, please go to PressForBuzzkill.com. You know what to do when you get there. And we'll talk to all of you next week. 